hey, Jack, I've been wanting to talk to you about something. Yeah? Have you noticed that ever since we watched that new Mythica movie, Chelsea's been acting a little bit different? Uh, what do you mean? Well, she keeps talking about the film and, like, saying how Merrick had a lot of good points and how she can kind of see how, like, if you had that dark power that Merrick has that she could totally see why you would use it? Uh, I can see. But, like, is that is that it right now? Yeah, no, yeah, she's been singing like this for, like, days. Like, ever since we watched the movie. Like, it just never really stops. Hmm. Yeah, just just listen to the words for a minute. It's creepy. But you mustn't let it free. It isn't what it seems. You could be the next big bad villain. You feel your power grow when you suck life from your foes. You can't keep it bottled up forever or you'll die. You see what I'm saying? She's talking about being a big bad villain. I I can see why it's a little troubling, but uh, like I, it's a little catchy. Gotta what, admit. What What do you mean? Well, like like it, it it's definitely troubling. The dark energy sings, but like it's got it's got a sort of like ring to it. Got a got a swing to it. Oh no! Are, you're not you're not catching it too, are you? I mean, call me crazy, but I think I get it. I think I can, I think I can do that. <laughs> oh, oh God, no. Don't you start too. I can't, I can't do this all alone. Yet you feel it. Coursing through your veins, the dark energy sings. You know that you were meant for more. But you mustn't let it free. It isn't what it seems. You, you could be, be the, the next big bad villain. You feel your power grow when you suck life from your foes. But you can tell your humanity. I, I just can't resist anymore. I might as well just give in to the dark power. You can keep it bottled up forever, or you'll die. Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Mokul, here with my legendary co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a dark elf that just wants, just wants some friends. <laughs> what was the what was the like slur the rogue used against the oh. dark elves? Oh jeez, I don't remember. I don't remember. That. I, w- I wish I'd made a note of that. <laughs> yeah. I wish I remember that too. That was <laughs> fucked. Yeah. That was literally the first thing I thought when you said I'm a dark elf in oh, this setting. Oh, De- I'm like, oh De- Deshi or something? No, Druchi is Druchi. But that's the, that's what they're called in Elvis. But he said it like the way like, he said it like the Dreamy. the Louis C.K. bit, like how like if you say the way you say it, it infers the meaning. Oh yeah. Meaning. Oh yeah, that's right. 
Oh, Drucci. No. <laughs> oh shit. You're right. Don't worry, you'll find a party out there somewhere. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm Jack Olander, an orc that took a bodyguard position, but you know, now I'm working for some crazy prophet of a necromance. I don't know. I've I'm just in over my head. Hey man, work street. is hard in this gig economy. You gotta take what you can get. Yeah. It seems like it would be pretty good pay. I mean, I thought I was going to get paid, but now it seems sort of like servitude. And I, oh, I you yeah. know, that's a bad deal. I just don't know. I'm afraid to ask. He's got yellow eyes. I was going to ask you if you negotiated to be paid in gold rather than silver, because we all know that's so much better. Yeah, got to get paid in gold. Ew, silver? No, I just, I no, forget it. <laughs> no. All right, guys. Well, this week we are going to be talking about Mythica 2 colon the Dark Spore. The from the colon. A dark spore from the colon? It's a it's an evil fart. Good ah. thing we got the poop out right at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> yeah. My my mama always used to say, get that poop out at the beginning. <laughs> That was an important. I mean, you lesson. gotta empty your bowels in the morning. That's how you know you're healthy. You gotta, you gotta poop before you shower, because if you go after, you just gotta start your whole day over. <laughs> yeah, you, you might, ruined it. You might as well take another shower then get back in bed. And then there's the chaotic <laughs> evil. There's the chaotic evil waffle stomp your poop in the shower. And wait, what? <laughs> You know, you pee in the shower. Yeah. If you poo- and then you waffle stuff. Anybody who does who says they don't pee in the shower is lying to you. Obviously. <laughs> and anyone who waffle stomps, I, I think you, uh, if you tell someone, you might be on a list. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the sort of dark magic that you see in Mythica too. <laughs> Or that it inspires. <laughs> yes. This evil necromancy that this film has brought out in us. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, <laughs> let's cover some of the basic details off the top. This film was directed by Swords and Satire favorite Anne Black. And it stars right. Melanie Stone, Adam Johnson, Jake Stormowin, Nicola Posner, uh, somebody whose name I refuse to use uh, in this show to not bring us all down, who plays a wizard, and oh, <laughs> and some genuine D and D royalty, Mister Matthew Mercer. Oh boy, I was so excited to see his face. Oh yeah, I mean and it's I mean, always a thrill. He doesn't even need makeup because he just looks like an elf. Yeah, he pretty much has the elven look, like, just naturally, which is a good feature for any fantasy uh, enthusiast. He's such an amazing voice actor. Oh my god. It's just great. (laughs) So, Mr. Mercer, you're gonna be playing a necromancer. Uh, done. Uh, You want the script? I don't, I don't need it. (laughs) I I get it. I can improv this bitch. All right, guys. Well, you know, there's a lot of characters in this one. There's a big overarching plot that connects back to the previous movie. So why don't we give our listeners a summary? 
Here's your summary for Mythica Do <laughs> Dark Spore. Okay, so we're going to try a little bit of a different format this time, explaining what's going on through the characters. Because there's a lot of them. Um, so we've got the adventuring party, right? It's kind of like a D&D adventuring party. So, you know, this is a classic tale of a pretty recognizable template for an adventuring party. First off, you've got your sorcerer necromancer. Yeah, Merrick, who likes to use the dark suck on her friends or foes. Can't really tell the difference sometimes. Yeah. You've got your meat shield. Yeah, Thane, the frontline soldier who they always just let take all the hits. You've got your fuckboy rogue. <laughs> that would be Dagon, the half-elf, and uh, he can be a little cringe, a little creepy at times. He's kind of he kind of max on Merrick a lot of the time, and she just chooses to ignore him. And of course, there's your doe-eyed cleric, Tila, who worships a god that turned their back on the world. <laughs> Classic god. It's true. She never fucking answers her when she calls for her help. <laughs> your prayers fall on the ears of an owl. It doesn't understand your language. <laughs> and along. <laughs> and along the way, they pick up a Chad elf. Oh, yeah. Coley or Cole. Is it Cole, Cole or Cole? <laughs> it's Cole, but with a Q. It's so confusing. It's Elvish, Chelsea. Is it an I or an E at the end? That would be a lot more helpful <laughs> It's for an me. E. Thank you. He may be an elf, but he has the girth of an orc and skin that always has melted butter all over it. I know. And everybody just drools all over him all the time, including me. Oh, so it's butter and drool. <laughs> and of course, there's a shitty wizard who just kind of like dispenses little bits of knowledge and then flits off like an asshole. Oh, yeah, that's Gojun, the betrayer. At least that's what uh, somebody else calls him. Somebody betrayer. named Matt Mercer. Who's the necromancer? The I, evil necromancer. Is he really evil, though? I guess his character name is Zorlock, you know, but that's less important. I mean, it's going to be hard not to call him Matt Mercer, but <laughs> Zorlock's a pretty cool name. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad we watched Mythica 2, Matt Mercer. <laughs> now that's a critical role. Now, but Zorlock <laughs> isn't the one pursuing them. He has his minions led by. Your typical bald evil man. Oh, yeah. Kishkumin. He likes to stab people with poisoned uh, daggers. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of your nice skeleton for an adventure. And they're all going, trying to go after the Dark Spore, which is the heart of a Lich King. And any necromancer that wields the Dark Spore, like increases their power by tenfold. They level up ten times. Nobody's gonna take advantage of that skeleton of an adventure joke that was I left just left sitting there? I don't know. I I was so involved in my brain of trying to like have the last sentence to tie it all together with the plot that I didn't hear what you said. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Sorry. I'll hear it in playback and laugh like usual. <laughs> you you are the Buffy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I've uh, mentioned this before, but 
for my some of my game night groups, when I'm playing online games with friends, they now know that if Chelsea's laughing in the background, it means that our episode is going to be really good that week. <laughs> yeah, nice. I'm usually laughing at some part or another. And that's because every episode is good. Yeah. Yay. And you know what? I mean, along the way, this is a D&D adventure. We're going to have some dragon fights. We're going to have some... Dungeons. Some dungeons. We're going to have some little details about the world of the past that is just alluded to. Right. Uh, We're going to have some betrayal. We're going to have some dark nights of the soul. And just a general, you know, good outline for a classic adventure. So, yeah, that's our framework for the movie and kind of a broad strokes of how the film plays out. It's a little disorienting while watching, but I'm sure we'll figure it out as we delve deeper into the movie. So why don't we head into The Delve? Welcome to The Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, lore, and everything else for Mythica 2, The Dark Spore. Man, I feel energized to talk about this movie after that killer soundtrack. (laughs) I know, that's a banger and a half. Yeah, I wish it would play again right now. Man, that was sick even the second (laughs) I don't know how it gets better every time. Like, it, it actually gets richer and you start to appreciate it more and more with every lesson. It's true. And do you think even a th- no, <laughs> no. <laughs> Too much. The The audience's heads would explode. Not in the fun way, either. <laughs> Did you say heads explode? That's not too dissimilar from, you know, some of the horrible, awful magics we see in this movie. That's true. You know, in this film, we've got this kind of constant struggle in Merrick's character arc between this incredible power that she has and the potential repercussions of her using it. And I think that that's kind of the major thing that links this movie to the original and is kind of maybe probably setting up to be the overarching thesis of this film series. Yeah, you know, I never hear Merrick uh, asking for consent before she uses the dark suck on people. That is a problem. Mm -hmm. That is a problem. Although a lot of times she uses it while under duress and she is ostensibly trying to help out and protect. First off, Mm self-defense. Second off, to help her friends out, she hopes, but possibly at the cost of their health and or sanity. Mm -hmm. And if you don't recall exactly how the power works from listening to our first episode about Mythica, which, (laughs) you know, do that. But uh, that would be Mythica colon a quest for heroes. Yeah. When she uses the dark suck, she starts ripping the souls out of everyone around her, which doesn't discriminate against her friends. Nope. Exactly. It seems to take the life of all humanoids or possibly all living things. Yeah. Except for plants and stuff. It doesn't seem to hurt the, the plants around her. It's an area attack with friendly fire. Yes. <laughs> Every sorcerer has at least one. Yes. She seems to use it with impunity. (laughs) Yeah, there's a scene in the film where she uses the dark suck. And 
it causes necrosis on Dagon's fingers. Oh god! I yeah, know. on his on his bow plucking fingers too. Oh yeah, yeah. And he's like, "Oh my god, Merrick, what did you do? My fingers, they're they're rotted flesh." And she's like, "Get over it, idiot. <laughs> Don't be so dramatic. I saved your ass." He's like, "My hand. <laughs> I, my fingers are black." She's like, "Hey, th- this is this is uh this is not my fault." <laughs> She gets all defensive. I know. She I was like, you were gonna, you. yeah, you were going to die. <laughs> I mean, she's not wrong. <laughs> she doesn't acknowledge for a sec that it's unfortunate. She doesn't try to comfort him at all. <laughs> no, no, I she's think he not... would have been satisfied with this. I'm sorry, but uh, maybe Merrick doesn't uh, roll like that. No, she's more of a don't even ask for forgiveness type. Yeah. No permission, nor forgiveness. <laughs> Shut the fuck up and just use your other hand. <laughs> but, you know, it's in this movie that we find out that Merrick is actually a necromancer, which, I mean, you know, of course, as fantasy fans, we all know what that means. But in the context of this film, the necromancers are some of the most powerful mages in the world who have control over life and death, much yeah. like in all other fiction that includes necromancers. But she doesn't seem to have much control over her own abilities. She has this access to this great power, and she doesn't always seem to be aware when she's using it. Like when Jack's saying, when this was when they were in the bogs, and they were getting attacked by those bog whites, and they were surrounded and basically losing the battle. And oh, they were dead. Like, everyone was going to die. Yeah, they were all kind of like, you could see it on their faces, like they thought they were going to die. and They're like a she, level three party, maybe generously, like level two to three. And that was like at least a CR5 encounter. They weren't ready for it. The DM did not balance that fight very well. It was a, a near TPK. And then she t- starts using the dark suck on the white, which is when she's sucking the life out of him. But then... She starts sucking it out of everyone around her, and it seems like she just was intending and focused on the white, and she seemed totally oblivious that she was sucking it out of everybody else around her. So the power is growing in her, just like in the song. (laughs) Oh, which song is that? Oh, I'm not sure. (laughs) So... (laughs) She's having difficulty resisting this dark power within her. And Tila keeps warning her about it. And she's like, she's basically all a doomer, Tila. She keeps saying to Merrick that you're not going to be able to resist this. You're going to turn evil, basically, if you use the power. Right. Like, she doesn't have any faith that Merrick can resist it at all. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And... Somebody says in this movie that the only absolute power in the world is death. Oh. Oh. Not bad. Well, evil. <laughs> but not bad. Not bad. Tilo is doing some doom scrolling hardcore right there. Well, Tila now has a reason to be a little bit down in the dumps because we get flashbacks and find out that somewhere between the end of the first movie and the beginning of this movie, which seems to be the difference of like a couple days, 
Tila's sister, Karen, is killed by Kishkamen's forces. Okay, thank you for explaining that to me, because I thought that was all a fever dream of mine. <laughs> it happens in flashbacks, <laughs> and they are very schizophrenic and difficult to follow. And then we just kind of know that Tila is bummed and, like, kind of standing in mourning. Like, she's supposed to stand for 14 days without speaking but then when Merrick shows up she's like you fucking did this <laughs> like well you kind of broke your whole like vow of silence or whatever she's just kind of like a kangaroo priestess you know i i mean in the first movie uh, you know the the way she interacted with the idol and her staff and using her magic was just kind of like She's going off of faith, right? Which yeah. is something that fluctuates. And in this movie, it's kind of wild, too. She shows mixed results. Merrick at least can suck whenever she wants. But, <laughs> you know, asking the goddess for help? The goddess can say no. Merrick <laughs> has true. a kind of depression that sucks the life out of the whole room. Relatable. She <laughs> yeah. Very relatable. Yeah. Oh, she's a Dementor. Oh, yeah. Good call. But yeah, I mean, this movie really is the dark night of the soul for most of the characters, like Jamie was saying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this they... is like the, the adversity that they are facing that is, you know, will it tear the party apart? Will they be able to weather the storm? Yeah, well, we know by the end. stronger in the end? Yeah. or. We kind of sort of know by the end, yeah. but, you know, they take their licks along the way, too. Definitely. I mean, Thane. They take their licks, they take their sucks. <laughs> it's a whole thing. Yeah, and Thane is dealing with his own sense of loss because he thinks that Tila abandons him at one point. And He's also dealing with crippling alcoholism. I know, which is it's true. And that carries sad. over from the first movie, too. It, it does. So listeners might need a little refresher. In the first movie, when we meet Thane... He is a disgraced knight. He used to be some kind of noble guard or something like that. He was well-respected. He's fallen on hard times, and we meet him basically passed out in a gutter. But we see, and again, this is the first movie, his kind of greater virtue come through when Merrick is being abducted, and Thane, even in his stupor, stands up for her and tries to protect her from abduction. Right. So in the beginning of this movie, we see him and he is basically just in that depressed state of just constant inebriation and inability to really function until they get out onto the road and get adventuring. And then it seems like he's able to make this like really sudden change to kind of a more clear headed purpose. He really is a person who needs something to focus his energy towards or he falls into self-destructive patterns and he needs people to protect he needs a community around him and i mean i think we can all feel that a little bit yeah i mean i really like thane he doesn't get a lot of characterization in these films but like these little bits of details like that where he kind of goes from barely able to function to like ready to go like as soon as he's got something that he can focus his energy towards, he's actually really a, a stalwart companion to the rest of the group. Definitely. In combat, we mentioned that he's sort of the tank. He stands there and he takes the hits for people. And he sort of plays a similar social role, I feel, 
where he's one of the characters who I think is lacking in a lot of angst and edge. Yeah, right? (laughs) He has his own struggles, like you mentioned, but he's sort of like, you know, he's stable. Right. Which the group needs. Yeah. Yeah, he is like the steady hand. Yeah. And I think that's why Tila is so drawn to him, right? She's looking for, she's trying to be like a good person. And like the uh, the closest to a good person in the group is Thane, right? Yeah, I'd say Thane or Tila would be like the closest archetypes to like good motivated characters. Like characters who are motivated by selflessness. Exactly. And they have googly eyes for each other. Exactly. It's pretty cute. Tila sees a lot of what she wants to be in Thane, I think. And uh and a lot of qualities that she admires and, you know, looks up to. She's you know, he's sort of like a role model. I think they're they fulfill that role for each other, which is definitely. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it. And you know, Tila is an interesting character. She is She's motivated by a drive to do good and to honor her goddess, but she is also kind of struggling with, I mean, first off, the loss of her sister. I mean, that's obviously going to be yeah challenging for anybody. She's she, grieving throughout the movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, 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 we reintroduce this character with this grieving period. That's what sets her off on the Doomer path. It is, yeah. <laughs> but she's also kind of having trouble... I would say, like, maybe asking for what she wants. Yeah. She comes on to Thane in the middle of the woods after one of her uh, daily baths, which Thane says is, you know, going to get them killed because it's clearly not standard protocol in this setting to bathe daily. But Thane stands guard over Tila while she's doing this, respectfully averting his gaze. Yeah. But then there's this moment where after that, she basically comes on to him. And tells him to turn around. In classic movie shorthand for I want to bone down, which is like dropping your tunic in the middle of the woods. Yeah. (laughs) Around the person that you are interested in. And then uh, Dagon just... Dagon, not Dagon. (laughs) 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 Important distinction. Um... (laughs) No, Dagon, it just starts peeing in the corner right next to them and and totally kills their vibe. Yes. And it's and he's being really petty right then because Merrick is interested in Cole. But that's because not it's not only because Cole is ripped and has an eight pack. It's just it's, mostly because Cole is ripped and has an eight pack. <laughs> and sweet it, face tats. It's true. He has tattoos all over and that's pretty sexy. But he um he's so supportive of her and Cole, t- is. Cole is supportive of Merrick and takes her side and and tells her that she can improve and that she's strong enough to beat the darkness and stuff. He's the only one around there that actually is supportive and like a friend to her. Now we should talk about how they meet Cole because Cole's not in the first movie. They actually yeah. meet him along the way and free him. Yeah. Oh, he was <laughs> Tied up by, like, pixies. Yeah. Like, I mean, this has happened to all of us, obviously. Like, this is a very familiar scene. You're out in the woods. You're 
maybe like gathering mushrooms or reading from ancient standing stones. And all of a sudden, these damn pixies come around, tell you that you're invading their woods. They ensorcel you and leave you stuck. Actually, they were some kind of creepy spider pixie hybrid or something. Yes, it's true. They were fun, wacky little antic creatures, which were slightly better, but reminded me a lot of the brownies from Willow. Oh, oh interesting. Yeah. Big, similar energy. I think, mercifully, a much smaller role in this movie than in Willow, which I think those pixies might have been our major complaint with Willow. That's true, they were. Mm-hmm. But, so, Cole is a, um, I guess a dark elf, a, yeah. dr- a druki in this yeah. world, and Dagon, the half-elf rogue, does not trust Cole. There is instant racism. Well, yeah, and Cole gives it right back. I think he calls Dagon a half-breed. He does, yes. But it's, I mean, yeah, and that is probably understandable given the context that Dagon is saying, oh, you come from an entire race of liars and thieves, or, well, or whatever, betrayers. And he's holding a dagger to Cole's throat. Well, yeah, that's never such a good first impression, not gonna lie. But then, it's not very smart of Cole to antagonize him at that point either no but i mean it's also uh, maybe understandable i mean so my point is mostly just that there's this animosity between cole and dagon throughout the whole dagon throughout the whole film and going back to what chelsea was saying about how dagon is feeling petty during thane and tila's kind of uh meet cute not meet cute but uh like little tryst moment dagon is lashing out because he has a thing for mary yeah. And Merrick has got googly eyes for Cole. <laughs> She's flirting it up with him. Now, laying everything on the table, Merrick has a very good reason for not being interested in Dagon. Yeah. Despite the fact that Dagon has been a helpful companion, he straight up feels her up in the first movie. Yeah, sexual assault. So Dagon is a is a complicated and I would say problematic character. Yeah. Based on this childish behavior he exhibits his huge issue with consent and boundaries. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in the first movie he also forces a kiss on her. I believe that's correct, yeah. Gosh darn it. And it seems like later on they're able to patch that up since they have to adventure together. Um, And they even start to like form a real bond and friendship. But I think that that early animosity kind of seems to always be a barrier between them at that point. I think it's very much understandably. Set, I think it's very much set the tone for their interactions. Yeah. Uh, again, understandably. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But so I, I think like Merrick maybe has forgiven him to some extent, but like she cannot forget, and right. not, nor should she. And so I don't think he has a chance with her. But here's the thing: <laughs> where I, I, Dagon is a complex character, though, because he is actually in a lot of ways, the most protective member of the group towards everybody else. Yeah. He, like, is really... He see, he's this rogue, right? He's, like, your classic D&D rogue. He's, he's yeah. you know, suave. Or he thinks he's suave and he's sly and all this and, and everything. He's sneaky. He's sneaky and He can, uh, you know, conniving. he's a picklock. Lockpick, yeah. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> he's he a sneak. ties the net they're caught in. Yeah, he's yeah. a sneak thief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a scoundrel. Right. But he's also really concerned about Thane and his addiction problem. 
That's he's, true. He is, you know, worried about Cole because right or wrong, like he has this perception about the danger that Cole could pose to the party. Before he was a user, and now being a part of this group and befriending female companions and not just, you know, betting them, quote unquote, or just to put it that way, which is blah. But anyway, that's that's the way he would put it. I would um, say yes. From the academic perspective, it's quite blah. Yeah. But um, he actually has grown quite a bit as being part of this group. And in the first movie, he only helps people when he thinks he can get something out of it. And if he thinks he's put in more danger than it's worth, he might take off. In this one, he actually does care about this group and he considers them his friends. And he's grown to the point where he will act selflessly and even put himself in harm's way and put a target on his own back to save the others. And he does that at one point near the end. Yeah. So he has come a long way. I, I believe that Dagan is the one who, at the end of the movie, when everybody is kind of laying wounded and dying, He's, like, begging Tila to get up and, like, use her clerical powers to heal everyone. Yeah, he goes, he has a healing potion, and instead of drinking it himself, he goes to heal Tila so that she can heal, uh, Thane. Very smart. Because Thane had, you know, he was a pincushion full of arrows. Yeah, he really Boromir'd. Yeah, there were a couple Boromir moments in this film. I mean, I remember in the first movie, <laughs> Thane basically just gets knocked out a lot. Yeah. Like yeah. five times or something. And he's he had to be healed a lot then too by Tila. I mean That's, he is he is the quintessential tank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they've been doing some lay on hands, Thane and Tila for a while. Yeah. <laughs> is is <laughs> yeah. that what we're calling it? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember in the first movie how Tila heals. She has to like fucking stick her hands in the wound and, oh. and use the like healing energy by just like getting in there. I forgot about that. Yeah, she just goes hand into gash. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was the first one or if it was Night of the Dead. I, I couldn't remember. I think it was this ooh. one. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, but I did think it was very touching seeing. Uh, Dagon's reaction. Yeah. When people were dropped down, because there's that instant panic of his friends being in, you know, critical condition. I thought that showed, like, real character progression. That yeah. was just the best. And I love how when there's the big battle between the party and all of the necromancer's troops at the end. Led by Kishkumen. Yeah, Kishkumen. Dagon, <laughs> Dagon, Dagon seeks out Cole specifically. Well, because he was jealous of him, right? But he also is upset over the betrayal aspect of what you know played out, right? So, I mean, right off the bat, he was suspicious of this dark prince they broke the bonds of in the woods, right? <laughs> Who can love this dark prince with these tattoos all over his muscled body? <laughs> exactly. He has 400 quadradecillion pack abs and, <laughs> and his skin glistens with, you know, canola oil. 
which oh, naturally good. produces. And, uh, <laughs> That's how he keeps his hair coiffed like that. Oh, he has yeah. the shifting tapestry of the gods on his face. Yeah. yeah. And this faux hawk that is just like a 2000s kid's uh, like wet dream. Yeah. Yes. He's just fantastic. And so he, he can't be trusted. <laughs> he he, uh, he displays high emotional intelligence like a like a dangerous person. Too much of a right? good thing. It's suspicious. That's a good point. He is probably the most emotionally intelligent character in the entire film. I think he is. <laughs> and but, one of the more complex as Jack's about to explain. Yes, but after a dragon fight which is pretty good. And it lasts about as much time, if not double the amount of time that would probably take in a and d encounter. They immediately go from a dragon fight directly into a combat with Tishkemen and his orcs. Yeah, his orc basically... Orcs and assassins. Yeah. And yeah. his sex worker assassins. That's right. Who were sent by... Sir Ducius, the Maximus. Malister, the douchiest of the Maximus, yes. Uh, he hires these two, uh, they seem to be sex worker assassins? I think so. Or something? To uh, hunt down Merrick? Which I think is an interesting concept to have, like, these ladies of the night slash, like, bounty hunter killers. And I know you're going to get more into that in a minute here. Oh, I'm sure I will. When they finally come up upon Tishkemen and the militia... Cole reveals that the entire time he was a double agent and is delivering the Dark Spore to the Necromancer's troops. Yeah, they had um, explored in the ruins and found the Dark Spore, which was part of the dragon's heart. Mm -hmm. So that's what, how they you know, got it after they killed the dragon. Classic relic hidden inside of a dragon's chest. It's true, you know... That these these people trying to make a living, they do all the hard work, and then the people in power try to take it from them. Tale as old as time. It's More on that to come. Yeah. But uh, so Cole was basically betrayed the group. The group, but was also concerned about their safety. He doesn't actually want Kishkamen to hurt them. He's like, "Hey, we had a deal." You were supposed to let us all go after you got what you wanted. He does try to negotiate for all of them to be allowed to leave without being harmed. Hey, guys, I've got a lot more to say about this movie. But before we keep going, why don't we head to the bounty board? You finally made it into the dark tomb with the treasures that you and your party have been seeking. But something strange appears before your eyes. You, your mind is foggy and clouded. You're not sure exactly what's going on. Before you, on a wall, is written out all of your flaws. But uh, after a moment of hesitation, you notice it's only an illusion. And when your head is cleared, you see the true writing says, Bounties? As the winter pall lifts and the seasons begin to change, don't you think it's time to enjoy a good book? And what better way to experience a story than with our favorite format here at Swords and Satire, audio recordings. 
That's why our show is sponsored in part by Audible, the world's leading provider of audiobooks, spoken word entertainment, and now podcasts, including ours, by the way. And if you head to audible.com slash swords right now, you'll be able to start your free 30-day trial of Audible, and you'll receive an audiobook of your choice that you get to keep even if you can't see your membership. Although I can't imagine why you'd want to, because Audible has thousands of titles and programs. And did I mention podcasts like Swords and Satire? After your 30-day trial, it's just $14.95 a month, and you'll get a monthly credit for an audiobook that will be yours forever. I love Audible because it helps keep me entertained when I'm sharpening swords, cleaning the moat, or fighting off those pesky invading hordes. I have a library of hundreds of titles from my favorite authors, from J.R.R. Tolkien and Naomi Novik to George Carlin and Jen Kirkman, and I'm always listening to some of the great titles from Audible's extensive collection. And you can start building your own library today. If you don't know what book to start off your collection with, you could grab The Fifth Season by Hugo Award-winning author N.K. Jemisin. It's a complex and gripping dystopian sci-fi epic filled with interesting characters, deep world-building, and cataclysmic events. It's also the first book in Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy, so once you finish book one, you'll be able to start your next month of Audible with the sequel, The Obelisk Gate. So one more time, head to audible.com swords to start your trial, get your first audiobook credit, your free wellness guide, and to browse the thousands of titles in Audible's extensive library of audiobooks, spoken word programs, and oh yeah, podcasts, like this one. And now, back to the episode. And so, naturally, chaos breaks out because the party communicates best through violence. <laughs> yeah. And Just like an adventuring party uh, of players in D&D. It's true. Play to your strengths, right? So they start lashing out. All hell is breaking loose. People are attacking each other. Alliances, assumed alliances, are breaking from the get-go. Cole is apparently working for the bad guys. And uh, Dagon, you know, he takes it personally. He hasn't liked this handsome, sexy, intelligent, uh, kind individual uh, from the get-go, right? <laughs> and uh, now that he betrayed them, all the, uh, you know, he, he he's justified in his hatred. Uh, but he, however, fe he feels justified. Definitely. Yes, he, he definitely. feels justified. Yeah. However, you know... It, it's a little more complex than that, because it seems like he was kind of getting used to the idea of traveling with Cole. At least that's what my impression was. It seemed like he felt a little bit of that betrayal. I think so. Well. That's why it was so... That's why his reaction was so intense. I think you're right. Yeah, because he attacks Cole right off the bat he goes past all the other soldiers he's like that's the guy i'm gonna fight <laughs> recklessly and, yeah and cole still doesn't want to hurt him when he's attacking cole cole is using defensive maneuvers and is looking at dagan like what are you doing man and cole <laughs> is trying to fight for merrick's party yeah 
in this battle. He's fighting against the orcs and other assassins. But Dagon doesn't care. Yeah. Dagon's like, no, I'm going to take you out. It doesn't matter that I've got other high-priority targets right now. You're the one that I'm going to put down. And he doesn't yeah. get a chance to because the orcs swarm in and they have to start fighting those mm-hmm. guys. Dagon is a feel-and-react kind of guy. Yeah. Definitely. I think it's like, with the writing of the characters in these movies, they really try to fit them into these D&D roles, and that is the kind of behavior that would fit with a traditional character like his. Mm-hmm. I, I agree to some them- extent, but he's, like, like I said, he is also, like, weirdly loyal to the group for somebody who might be, like, your classic chaotic neutral character. Yeah, I mean, they do give them some complexity, for sure. But I think that the reason why Cole betrayed the party and gave up the Dark Spore leads into another discussion that Jamie wants to talk about. Very nice. Well, thanks, Chelsea. That's a a (laughs) very good and natural segue into the thing I want to talk about. That's how people talk in normal conversation, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Because there's a theme that links the first movie to this movie and possibly later on, uh, and that is servitude, slavery, and freedom. Kind of this big umbrella of who has the autonomy to make choices about their life, their choices, their economic opportunities. It seems like a struggle of some type. Yeah, it's like a struggle that happens between, like, adventuring classes. No, no, wait, sorry. Economic classes. Right. Right. It's like oh. a class struggle, if you will. Oh. And, and and now, of course, I don't just mean fighters and rogues never get along. Do you think that this oh. idea warrants its own music? It might. What the fuck was that? <laughs> that was incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's got me pumped. Chelsea, I love the new class struggle theme song. It's exciting. So it wouldn't be a Swords and Satire episode without everybody's favorite and non-controversial segment, <laughs> Class Struggle. Yeah. Where I go on about how... People of lower economic classes are subjugated by those in higher economic classes. And I think that... No, uh, I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, you know how we're poor. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And you know how we're poor because of the unfair economic systems that have been put in place in the the world around us. You see, that's where you lost me. Okay. Well, let me see if I can explain it through the use of... Uh, characterization in this film. That sounds like fun. I'm in. (laughs) So when we meet Merrick in the first movie, she is an indentured servant slash slave whose life is literally has a dollar value or a gold coin value amongst, uh, you know, the people in the world around her. Right. She has very little autonomy. She wants to learn magic and she has this friend, Gojin. Ironically, portrayed by uh, you're gonna have to name him i think (laughs) i was gonna say ironically portrayed by uh notable 
conservative shithead Kevin Sorbo, <laughs> who would probably hate any person who was an indentured servant or slave and, yeah. and looked down upon them in reality. But in this movie or in this series, he's a benevolent wizard who's willing to train Merrick, even though it's very much a taboo. It's against the law. Yeah, it seems to be against the law to, to teach a slave magic that she could use to free herself or possibly murder her slave owner. Um, definitely good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she doesn't. <laughs> and, you know, this this builds up with Merrick's character throughout the, the series where she is struggling with this newfound power oh, that wait, she, she has. Wait, she did use the dark suck on him to get away. That's how she got away in the first movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I, my brain works, you know, good. <laughs> I like Sometimes. how I convinced you that I remembered that when you said it. That was good of me. That's the high charisma score. Yeah. yeah. So Merrick's newfound freedom kind of reflects back her kind of uncertainty of how to exhibit this power that she has that she didn't know. This dark suck, as we call yeah. it. Yeah. She uses it recklessly because she is just testing the boundaries of what can be done outside of the realm of indentured servitude, right? Like, she doesn't have this natural training. She, if she had been trained properly in, like, an academy, let's say, let's say if there was some kind of schooling system that was paid for by, let's say, the king, okay? A Hogwarts, if you will. Oh, let's not say that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we do want her to learn how to use a privy. So We do want her. Yeah, exactly. I don't yeah. want her um, shitting anywhere and then just magicking in a way. That's true. <laughs> yeah. No. So let's say that the king puts together a fund. The poop is back. And, you know, this fund is to put any mages who want to go to the mages college without having to pay all their gold pieces or having to, like, take out a loan from the local dragon to pay for going to this mage's What school. are you saying? I know. Well, this is a fantasy world, so right. we can, like, okay. imagine things that we'll sure. never have. I'll suspend my disbelief. Yes, please. That reminds me of the mage politician Burning Handers. <laughs> he wants free mage college for all casters. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> He's fighting for the freedom of all goblins and orcs, you know? Yeah, definitely. Equal pay for equal. Mm -hmm. equal and we won't stop until every orc, elf, goblinoid, and dragonborn is free from servitude and able to go to Mage's College. <laughs> yes. We've all heard that. The monarchies are stealing <laughs> all the spell poems and arcane scrolls. From the college mages <laughs> associations. I oh love this God. guy. So, you know, lacking this formal, again, paid for by the king or perhaps the realm, you know, if what if all the people of the town put together their money so that anyone who wanted to go to the mages college could go to the mages college and then it would lift up everybody if all the spellcasters had a formal spellcasting education and then Merrick wouldn't have this struggle where she's unable 
to balance her new use of this power. So, and she wouldn't have to be a slave because there'd be enough for everybody. Because, so, And in fact, you know what? We could just uh, eliminate the king and not even have a king. And then maybe just whoa, have like whoa. a council of, of townspeople who decide how to spend this money in a way that's best for the whole village. So in this fantasy world you're talking about, there would be no slaves? Exactly. Again, this is made up fantasy land stuff. Right. Just like spitballing for the sake of, say, a fantasy movie. And people would work for themselves and not have to work for somebody that takes most of the profits? That's right. I don't get it. And sex workers wouldn't have to be assassins on the side. Or vice versa. Good point. It's it's all according to individual preference. Yeah. I mean if you if you wanna now if you wanna dabble in both. Absolutely. That's but it fine. would be your choice. Exactly. Yeah. Wouldn't you be worried they would institute some sort of economy where the previously wealthy get paid in gold while the previous slaves get paid in silver, though? Hmm. Mm. Well, you know, the, the system would have to be reformed and revised over time. It's not going to be perfect on the first draft. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, I mean, maybe we could get burning handers to write the bylaws for magic and commerce. Good idea. You could regulate the prices of spell tomes and uh, arcane spell components so that, you know, people who don't make as much gold from their adventuring careers can still afford the supplies they need to go out into the field and earn a living fighting dragons. You know, you're giving me an idea. It's kind of like you're talking about a group of people that cooperate together and they're mm -hmm. all workers. Yes. And they workers own... Workers who cooperate. Yeah, and they own the product of their own labor. I know. It's a crazy idea that could, of course, only exist in fantasy film and stories. Right. Yeah, well, I guess we just have to hope that... uh Burning Handers, the, you know, becomes the Viscount of, um, Vermount. Vermin. Mount Vermin. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great fantasy name for Vermont. I'm sure they're going to love being called Mount, Mount Vermin. Vermin. <laughs> well, that's the why city he's, state. Well, that's why he's fighting for all the Goblin Way's rights. That's right. Yeah. So in all, in all seriousness, I'm really glad that this series portrays the damaging effects of in, of indentured servitude and slavery and, and creates this sympathetic character of Merrick who is like an escaped slave, right? And and we show in this movie how she is mistreated by people who are above her, quote unquote, economically, but you know, she is able to find community and break free of these shackles through, you know, an education, for one, and friendship. Yeah, it's her support network that ultimately helps her break free of these bonds. Yeah. And gives her another path to walk, besides getting into indentured servitude, which might be her only option that's just slightly better than slavery <laughs> now the movie tacks on this subplot a little bit because we kind of get like maybe halfway through 
these scenes of this guy who literally wants to buy her. Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, after their adventures, she is paying off her slavery to be a free woman. And then this guy shows up as like, it's hey, like her bond price or something. Yeah. And this guy shows up as like, hey, I literally own this woman. And the magister's like, yeah, okay, fine. You're a noble. Like, you can do whatever the fuck you want. And it's fucked up. But it's like, it's so shoehorned into the end of the movie. It's like they had this bigger theme that they wanted to explore. Yeah. But it ends up being kind of relegated to this weird kind of disjointed subplot slash, like, bookmark. Yeah. It could or have bookend. Been, it's a framing device. It could have been an editing issue, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I really liked how uh, Dagan is there with her for that, though. Yeah, yeah, he comes just to accompany her as a friend. Yeah, which is so nice. He's so stoked that she's finally going to be free. Yeah, I like that they can be friends. I hope that they maintain that. Same. And that he stops trying to hit on her because it's getting a little old. Mm-hmm. But I, I did like that moment. If it was Maybe. if it was more playful and and two-way, it'd be fine. Right, but because right, it's right, so yeah. clearly unwanted advances and awkward. It makes it awkward. Yeah. Maybe they could have an arc in the next movie where you know he confesses to her and she says he's like a brother to her <laughs> and then he and then he complains about how nice guys finish last. Oh god. And he starts donning a, a, a no, 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 no. No, that's a bad arc. Yeah. It's a bad arc. And then it starts playing Creep by radio. <laughs> well, eventually we'll find out because we'll cover the third movie at some point. Yes. We're going to do all of them. Oh, yes, we are. And maybe by then we'll get Anne Black to be on our show with us. Yeah. 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 We can get <laughs> Anne Black. Let's get Melanie Stone. Let's get some people from the Mythicaverse. Yeah. The Mythica Extended Universe. On to the show. If anybody knows, you know, if you're out there listening, give us a call. If anyone knows any of them, hit us up. That would Perhaps be fun. if you say Anne Black's name three times in a single breath, it will conjure her. Could be. Just a thought. Well, guys, we've covered a lot of the movie now. I think it's probably time for us to get to evil, stupid, or misunderstood. This is Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood, the part of the show where we take a look at the primary antagonist of the film and determine if they were stupid, or maybe evil, or could they just be misunderstood? Or other? No, no, that's far too much. <laughs> Sometimes we make the other up on the fly. So, <laughs> so guys, we've got... Two kind of main antagonists in the movie, one working for the other, and that is Zarlok and Kishkaman. Yeah. Zarlok, we kind of get in this, I would say, Diablo-esque backstory where Gojunpai kind of shows up while Zarlok is... Or Zarlok, I was about to be like, who? <laughs> like, yeah. Where Zarlok is, like, finding the dark spore, I guess, the, like the completed... Yeah, let's just be honest. Any scene with Matt Mercer, I couldn't see anybody else. 
Mm-hmm. He totally steals the show. That is fair. So, but yeah, we get this backstory between him and Gojinpai. Gojinpai takes the Dark Spore, shatters it. Gives it to these other faceless mages. Yeah, shatters it, has them, you know, take the four pieces and bring them to the four to corners the four, of the world. Yeah, the four corners of the globe. <laughs> and in that moment, he calls Gojun the betrayer. Um, Sorlak does. Matt yeah, Mercer. Yeah, <laughs> what's the deal with that? I don't know. We don't. I think we're gonna find out in the next movie whenever we watch it because that one is called the Necromancer and has Matt Mercer on the cover. So I think um, it's gonna like delve more into that whole story. I mean, that's assuming a lot. Yeah. So yes. it, it seems like maybe <laughs> Gojun uh, betrayed like the law by uh, no. <laughs> By no. teaching a, a slave. No. They obviously uh, knew each other before. That's what we get from that. Yes. And that Zorlak feels betrayed by Gojun, but for what we do not know, they must have been working together and uh, Zorlak, Matt Mercer, just went down this dark path that Gojun could not follow. IRL is the other way around, but you know. I mean, I was going to say, how do we know that Gojun Pai isn't actually the evil power in this? We he do is not. played by Kevin Sorbo. I know. In that scene, I started to get really suspicious of him. I mean, I was already suspicious of him to begin with. That might just be meta, though. But in that scene, it was even more so. I was like, the betrayer, huh? I don't think you can be trusted. And in this film, we see a lot of evidence. For, like, things aren't always what they seem, and you can't take things at face value. That's true. And there's a lot of um, theme about betrayal uh, with other characters, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if Gojunpai uh, is somebody who is possibly doesn't have all the good intentions that he claims he does, or that other people assume that he does, and he just doesn't dissuade them from that assumption, or he doesn't... Uh, pull the wool off of their eyes. He just lets them make these assumptions, basically. It's hard to know. And because when he was talking to Merrick and sharing that backstory in that flashback um, while they're around the fire, he tells Merrick that he's been searching for this prophesied necromancer that's supposed to gain all this power, and he thinks it's her. Mm-hmm. And he's encouraging her to follow that path. So it's possible that his altruistic behaviors have not been so altruistic all along. I know. Maybe he's the real villain. We have to include him in this. Or maybe we're just suspicious because it's Kevin Sorbo. Well, see, Tila, though, has been telling and warning Merrick that she's been getting these visions from her goddess that this necromantic power is actually going to lead her down a dark path and destroy them all. And so she has to fight the urge to use it. And I feel like she is somebody who can be trusted more than Gojun Pai. Maybe maybe I'm getting off the the theme of the segment we're in here, but I did forget to mention during the delve that there is that thing where Tila is saying to Merrick, like, you're powerful, you can control this dark magic, you just have to believe in yourself. Yeah, she she stops being as much of a, a gloomer and doomer. <laughs> um, at the near the end of the movie, and she she says that she was wrong, and that she does think Merrick can fight it. Yeah, and you know that's where we see that Merrick's training for under Gojun Pai maybe wasn't adequate, maybe on purpose. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Very Ooh. 
Interesting point. Maybe he's a sleeper agent. No, he can't be a sleeper agent. Maybe he's a triple agent. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> so he he's a, a could be a villain lurking in the background, but that's probably for another time. Yeah. So mm. let's talk about Kishkamen, who is the general of Zarlok, who is pursuing the party during the whole film. He's not as well fleshed out as a character. He's just kind of like flat. Classic flat henchman, right? Yeah, evil, just kind of seems to want to. Bald, very suspicious. Yeah, of wants course. to follow Zorlock and like increase his own power. But he yeah, seems to. Could be. He seems to delight in hurting others, like when he cuts Tila. He's in the cruelty, we know that. Yeah. He has a sadistic kind of torturer's appetite that he expresses towards Tila. He basically says, like, hey, like, I'm going to kill you no matter what. Yeah. Or at least he seems to kind of imply that. So what he does, we didn't uh, cover this, you know, for those who forgot from the film, he cuts Tila's hand with a poison dagger and tells Merrick that she has to get him the dark spore, and then he'll use the antidote to save Tila. But, but he was never going to do that. No, he's just a fuckhead who is going to betray them, obviously. It was a little awkward, though, when they opened the portal to the ruins, um, you know, Merrick and co. And then Kishkumen and his men kind of crest the hills surrounding the ruins. And the our adventuring party team just kind of fucking chills there until they get surrounded by all of them when they could have run into the portal. I mean, you gotta wait for the plot mm. to get there. <laughs> yeah, they have, you have to wait for the plot to catch up. I mean, anybody who's ever played a video game with a cutscene knows that you wait until the enemy forces are surrounding you before you actually, like, mount your offensive. Yeah, that way you can have um, a contested conversation. Yeah, and then it's more dramatic. You get more XP from all the kills you get when you fight off the whole That's army. True. Classic Dynasty Warrior stuff. So, Jack, what do you think? How should we label these guys? Let's see. Ah, uh, gotta tell you, I'm a, uh, there's a lot of evil going around. Yeah. I really gotta say. That kind of is the stain that runs through all of their tidy whities you know what I mean? Ew. Yeah. I think it's interesting that this world seems to like its completely evil-aligned villains. At least so far, that's how it seems. And gray morality heroes. Yes. We don't have any just, like, super flawless you know, Mary Sue, Gary Stu, Paragons of Justice, right? Yeah, honestly, it's way more interesting this way. I think yeah. I think Tila is the closest to, like, a classic good. Closest, yeah. But she admits that she can do wrong, and she made a mistake. Yeah. I mean, I think that that just makes her even more good. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, a lot of her mistakes and her flaws come from her trying to be good, which is awesome. That, I think that's really cool. <laughs> so taken in that light, it's kind of sad. It's kind of disappointing that Kishkamon, at least, is so just like classically like mustache twirlingly evil. Now, for the Ch master. Chelsea has brought up this idea that maybe Zarlok is not as bad as 
you know, his portrayal as the necromancer might indicate. And the fact that he and Merrick are both necromancers might imply that there's a more complicated relationship, but we just don't know yet. And all those scenes were being told through Gojun Pai. That was all from his perspective. He's the one telling Merrick what Zorlock was like and saying. And, you know, from Gojun's pie perspective, uh, the the Jedi are also evil. So. Exactly. It's true. Didn't we see some scenes of the Matt Mercer <laughs> whispering, You're mine, when she was using necromancy? Yeah, but that could be mm-hmm. a writer's convenience to, like, obfuscate what's going on for the viewer. No, but that Jack brings up a good point. We We didn't bring up the fact that Zarlok can, much like Sauron, feels the ring whenever Frodo puts it on. Zarlok feels Merrick's power whenever she uses the dark suck. It's true. Maybe all necromancers are entwined somehow? It's possible. Or it's because of his connection to the dark spore or something like that. Or he's her father. I mean, they're probably about the same age. Merrick, I am your father. No, you can't be. That's a ripoff of George Lucas. <laughs> I mean, I think Mer- I think uh, Melanie Stone and Matt Mercer are probably roughly the same age, but maybe Necromancer <laughs> makes you eternally handsome. Yeah, once you ascend to full Necromancer status, you stop aging. It's like a vampire. It's also possible mm-hmm. that his actual face is like a skeleton face. What that would the... make a lot of sense. Yeah. Who are you? It is I, Kishkumen, loyal follower of my master, Matt Mercer. That no, that's not the character's name. The what? <laughs> <laughs> Who? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess they're all evil. Kishkumen might even be a little stupid. He's very evil. I, I yeah. want to say right off the bat, I think Kishkaman is nearly pure evil, but I'll definitely hear the uh, logic that he's also stupid. He is an excellent employee, however. He's enthusiastic about the master's plan. He he's uh, He's trying to be masterful at his job. You know, he's got the passion. He He, he seems to love what he does. And yeah. I can respect that. He seems like he feels cockier about his abilities and his regiment of orc soldiers than he has a right to be. <laughs> That's fair, but he did talk those dumb adventurers into getting him the Darkspore, even though it was pretty clear he was going to betray him. That's true, but we don't know if that was his plan or if he was just taking out Zorlock's plan. Yeah. Yeah. He seemed a bit like a feel-and-react kind of guy also. Yeah. It was also kind of silly of them to even go in and get the Dark Spore with him still there because, you know, he never administers any kind of cure to Tila and the party still takes out his whole forces. Yeah. So, like, they could have just taken out Kishkaman and then got the Dark Spore and Cole would have never had to betray them. I know, because Dagon had the healing potion that he used to heal Tila when they came back from the poison wound. Yeah. And so he could have just given that to her and then they could have fought back. I mean, from the point, he had the healing potion for the poison and the stab wound that Kishkaman delivers to Tila 
at the beginning of the fight. He stabs it's, her in the side. And it seems to revive her almost immediately. The stabbing? The healing potion. <laughs> you know, a, bra- a bracing... Let me stab you with my be- knife of healing! <laughs> That's... That would be how her uh, holy order heals people for sure. Based on oh, what I we've... love that. <laughs> who, who remembers the heal rod from Final Fantasy that when you hit somebody, you'd heal them? They were good against the undead because the undead got hurt and healed. Ooh. And you could also use them to bop your party and give them a little dose of HP. Does it hurt your party? No, it heals them. I do kind of love the idea of a, a knife that does 2d4 damage, but one of the d4 heals. I think that um, we don't know enough about Zorlock to say if he's completely evil or not, because everything we know, most of what we know about him is coming from Gojun Pai, and we don't know if he's trustworthy. So I'm going to have to say that he's he is misunderstood with the dash of evil. Mm. Maybe he doesn't know what kind of uh, methods Kishkumen is using. It's possible. Maybe Kishkuman is just an over-enthusiastic employee. Maybe he's going to fire him when he finds out. I think Kishkuman got killed, right, in the fight? Oh, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I, I lost that part. I actually don't remember for sure either. I think he got away. I mean, he's a villain. He probably got away, right? Yeah. There's still three more of these things. Yeah. They just didn't include him in the script halfway through the fight. <laughs> They forgot He's just him. absent. They forgot about him just like we did. Mm. Well, I think that's that we called it. Yeah, I'm going to uh, write that down in the official tome of Evil, Stupid, or Misunderstood. And I think it's time to head into the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we forge a rating for this movie after we each share an epic moment or feature from the film. Chelsea, would you like to go first and tell us your epic moment or feature and then give us a rating between one and ten swords? Yes, I would. My epic moment is a personal moment. (laughs) Let's not make this personal now. During the movie, when they get to the ruins, what were they called again? The Gates of Mendiata. It's an old giant civilization of giant previous giants that is now long since uh, deceased. <laughs> the civilization, it is dead. <laughs> but there are ruins there with a gate to get into the Undercity. And it's like a portal. It's almost like a Stonehenge. And above the gate, there's a symbol. And... Merrick was kind of staring at it for a while, a la Gandalf at the gates of the Mines of Moria. And she's trying to figure out what it means. And there are like these dots. It almost looks like a Celtic knot with five points, but it's not a pentagram. And there are dots in some of the loops and swirls of the symbol. And she's staring at it for a while. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, that's the path. That's the path you have to walk around the the standing stones to be able to open yes. up the portal. And I was like yelling this out while we were watching the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. And 
Um, Jack and I are just sitting in the corner crying. (laughs) Chelsea's screaming at the screen. (laughs) Yeah. And it took them several minutes. The the characters are all starting to bicker while Merrick is just standing there, slack-jawed, staring at this symbol. And eventually she starts babbling, oh, it's so easy. I got it. I got it. And she starts running around, but she's running in the pattern from the symbol and she's like, you just have to move in this symbol to open the portal. I was like, I got that five minutes ago. Catch up, lady. But, um, yeah. So Chelsea's that- like, I'll be the adventuring leader. <laughs> but yeah, so that was cool. It was fun to be able to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give this movie six out of ten swords. It's It's a fun film. I love that it's an indie company uh and that they do so much with what they have which is a heart and drive love of fantasy and D D, obviously and, and some day rate actors yeah <laughs> who i adore but. yeah it's a lot of fun like i said and um i really appreciate what they do i mean you can tell that they use some stock assets, you know? <laughs> but you know what? So do I. So fuck it. Um, it's just, it's great. Uh, would I tell them not to use so many extreme close-ups? Maybe. Mm-hmm. But that's beside the point. I enjoyed myself. and That's I think, more than you can say for most movies we watch. Yeah, I think they tell a great story for the most part. Except for the confusing first 15 minutes. And the characters actually have a lot of depth to them. And I think the actors portray that very well is also. So it has a lot of heart. And it comes across. It's very endearing. And it lands well. And and I'm going to watch. I'm going to look forward to watching the next ones too. I, I can't wait. So yeah. Six out of ten. A respectable rating. Very nice. Jack, your epic moment or feature, and then your rating from 1 to Hmm. 10 swords? It's difficult. There are a few good moments in this movie. I'm going to have to go with the scene we've been talking about a few times already. Uh, when, When they're saving Cole from the pixies, and you see him tear off (laughs) the silk cocoon... And you, and as it reveals his horrible centipede body of abs that stretches on past the edge of the universe. You do see his abs and pecs first. <laughs> and you hear the roaring cacophony of like 10 trillion <laughs> orgasms happening at once. You can see Merrick and Tila just like eye-fucking him yeah, the whole time. Yeah, I know. His body is like the song easy like a sunday morning and like butter melting on fresh toast and like a cold night by a fireplace (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know a hot spring in snow (laughs) that's what his physique is yeah and uh it's more valuable than silver or gold (laughs) (laughs) and uh that that's that's pretty epic. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were gonna say something else, but that was it. <laughs> uh, 
That is epic. Shout out yeah. to actor Rocky Myers' personal trainer. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm I I was thinking the exact same thing as Charles. I'm gonna give this six out of ten swords. It, you know, some of the pacing it was a little bizarre. Uh, just a few of the character complexities for some of the villains were a little uh, put to the side. Some of the subplots at the end with, like, the slavery yeah. were a little added on. It was a nice epilogue because that's a scene you would have liked to have seen, and we did. But just the way it kind of fit in with the main plot was a little bizarre. So mainly just pacing issues and a few, you know, a few quirks here and there. But the movie is so endearing. It, it's got so much charm. Like you said, it's got heart and personality. I'm just saying, this movie had much less budget than films like Monster Hunter and, like, Cats 2019. <laughs> <laughs> All those big budget blockbuster films were like torture to live through. You're still waiting for the butthole cut, too. We are still waiting. <laughs> and this movie made me, uh, I feel good watching the Mythica movies. They're nice. They're just nice. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, six out of ten. But uh, the thing is, I would watch this again. Totally. And, that's, and you know, that's pretty solid. So, there you go. What about you, Jamie? What is your epic moment or feature in rating out of ten? Swords. Well, thanks for asking, Jack. Swords. Give us the swords, Jamie. Give us the swords. (laughs) Well, thanks for asking, Jack. My epic moment comes very close to the end of the movie. After the party has had their big fight and everything's gone down and they're kind of like, well, we've lost Cole. We're regrouping and, you know, Tila and Thane are having their kind of moment where they're finally like having a few minutes to kind of show their appreciation for each other. And Merrick and Dagon are kind of off on the side and Merrick kind of feels like, well, we beat Kishkaman and got away, but, you know, we have actually kind of not gained anything. Like we're kind of at we're we're kind of worse off than when we started, and Dagon in this great fucking like D and D party adventure. Uh, sorry, D and D player logic is like uh uh uh. I got a bag of dragon teeth, and these things are gonna be worth a hundred gold pieces each back in town. He's always thinking, and Merrick's like, I'm getting six hundred gold pieces. And he and Mer and uh sorry, Dagon's is like, yep, that's right. We're all actually gonna be really fucking rich thanks to this. And I I don't know why, but that was like that little just cherry on top of the movie for me that I absolutely thought was fantastic because it really was this kind of dark struggle they all went through. Things were tough. But it also to me, besides being a great moment where like Merrick knows she's gonna be at a or at least thinks she's going to be able to buy off her servitude and stuff. But Dagon didn't have to share that. Apparently, his rogue skills are such that he can extract the teeth of a dragon while nobody else notices. 
he he gives Merrick her share. I'm assuming if they were equal shares, that means Dagen could have kept it all for 2,400 gold pieces, could have kept to himself. You would think, you know, if you've ever been in a D&D group with somebody playing a rogue, yeah, sometimes that type of thing happens. But no, Dagen is a more complicated character than that. He really does, like, want to get in good with his friends and, like, help them out in some way. So I, I thought that that was both a fun little world building piece of that also tied back to the last film where they were out on an adventure, like collecting bounties. Yeah. And also character, a character building moment for Dagon where we see that he's not just selfish and out for himself. He really does care about this group of people. He just needed people that he could connect to, to bring out that side of him. You know, maybe he never had that. You know, a lot of times the backstory for half elves is that, they kind of don't fit in with humans and they don't fit in with elves. So they're always kind of on the periphery. And he does try to hide his pointy ears. Yeah. So, you know, it could very well be that he is a more complicated character by design. And he is really sensitive about it. And it seems like when Cole calls him a half-breed, it really cuts him to the core. Yeah. So there could be more going on there, yeah. So I like... uh Jake Storm Owens portrayal of Dagon, uh, even though he's got some troubling aspects to him, I think he might be my favorite character in these films. And yeah, I just love that moment. But I am going to give this movie, I think I'm following a recent trend here where I'm just edging a little bit higher than you guys. These ratings mm-hmm. are, of course, very much subjective. I'm going to give this a 7 out of 10 swords. Whoa. It is, I definitely agree, it is a little disorienting. One of my biggest issues with the movie is that I was aware of the cinematography. Yeah. And if I'm sitting there thinking about the cinematography, that means that something is going very, very wrong. And the biggest problem is that it, the cuts are very disorienting. We kind of, like, have, like an action sequence where a character is on the right-hand side and then it's a zoom-in on the left. And, like, you're never really sure who's where or what's going on. Chelsea mentioned that the some of the shots are way too close to the actors. Yeah, it's the structure and content of shots can... Yeah, the composition always, yeah. is just is just off somehow. Yeah. They're, when they're going through the bog, they're just, like, walking through, like, a corn maze and the shots are really zoomed in and it's not showing their surroundings in any way so it feels like claustrophobic but not in a way that would feel claustrophobic in just like a wheat field yeah i remember while we were watching the movie we were hyper aware that all of these close-ups were hiding something yeah and they maybe could have found a way to not do that (laughs) sure and i mean you know i also completely agree like God bless these guys for putting together a crew and fun actors who are charming and charismatic and who made me care about these characters and want to like explore this world more than a lot of recent films we've watched for the show. Yeah. Like I feel as engaged with this movie as I have been with our rewatch and coverage of The Witcher. Like, that's how much I like these characters. Yeah. I was excited. I, I like I said, I look forward to the next one. Yeah, me too. Me too. So, 7 out of 10 swords. I, I'm really having a great time watching these with you guys. And 
I can't stop thinking about these characters, and I think that that counts for a lot. Yeah. Like, they really stay with you. And so does that mm. music, man. Yes. <laughs> it's true. It's almost like you can't get it out of your head. Yeah. Maybe by design. <laughs> I also think it's worth mentioning that we enjoyed the first one enough and thought the characters were distinct enough to put Merrick on our fantasy Avengers. It's That's true. Right. So if you haven't listened to our anniversary episode from last September of 2020, where we cast our fantasy Avengers, I guess uh, spoilers for that episode, but we do cast Merrick as one of them. Yep. I'm just saying, if you've ever wanted Hercules from Hercules 3D to say... Let me help you out, little sis, to Merrick. Just imagine it with us there. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, you guys have to check it out if you haven't. But hey, we've had a fantastical time chatting about this movie, just like we think you would have a fantastical time if you followed Swords and Satire on social media, at Swords and Satire on Instagram and Twitter, and or join the Swords and Satire Facebook group. And you would have an equally fantastical time on our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash swords, by the way. We put extra content up there, like our rewriting history episodes, which we moved over there, other exclusive content, and polls each month where you can vote on the movies that we're going to watch. So if you have a couple bucks you could throw our way, a couple gold pieces... We'll even take silver. Yeah. You could head over and join our community of patrons. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have any silver or gold to <laughs> put towards being a patron, you can always tell your Chekhov's friend group about this podcast. <laughs> You've heard us mention it now, which means in a couple of hours or days, you're bound to tell them, right? And uh, if you tell your friends and they tell their friends and they tell their friends, well, you hope it leads back to you, right? But uh, then everyone will be listening. And won't that be great? Is that Chekhov's law of friendship? Is that if there's a friend in the first scene, he has to tell you about swords and satire by the final scene? That sounds convoluted <laughs> enough to be true. That's right. And until next time... Hail Crom! I I just can't resist anymore. I might as well just give in to the dark power. <laughs>